Hi, here's Oliver. Before we start, a quick heads up. If you want to build and scale your personal brand, I'm offering my Unignorable Masters program for 60% off at the moment. You and I will be working together for five weeks because the invisible don't reach their full potential in life, the unignorable do. And I want you to become unignorable. Now, on to this week's episode. You can teach people to financially model. You can teach people to do digital marketing. You can teach people to even code or build products. But there are a handful of characteristics that, to me, separate the entrepreneurs from the entrepreneurs, the people that really kind of have the gift. And one of that is their ability to communicate. Hello, and welcome to Speak Like a CEO, the leading podcast on CEO communications. My name's Lena Carlson, and I'm here with Oliver Aust. Hi, Oliver. Hi, Lena. Our guest today is Garrett McGowan. Garrett has been an entrepreneur for more than 20 years, founding a host of companies and organizations. He's currently the managing director of the VHU Entrepreneurship Center. VHU is obviously the leading business school in Germany based in Berlin. He's also the host of the incredible Most Awesome Founder podcast, which we can highly recommend. And today, Garrett contributes his energy to researching optimal human performance, something we're very curious to hear about from him. For instance, by using variable fitness trackers and daily reports to track flow states among startup founders. He's also an advocate for healthy work-life balance and rethinking startup culture. Hi, Garrett. Oliver. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. You too, Lena. That is a very full pleasure resume, if you will. In your own words, how would you describe what you do? Oh, gosh, that sounds like a question my mother would ask and I would have trouble answering. <laughs> um, you know, these days I would say that what, what I do is I feel very blessed to get to follow my passions and uh, probably feed a little of my natural inclination for attention deficit disorder. So, you know, I do a lot of different things. If, you know, first and foremost, if I'm not building businesses of my own, my favorite thing to do is help other people build theirs. So it's it's one of the reasons that kind of between all of my ventures, I've spent a lot of time either helping to build entrepreneurial ecosystems or working with uh, aspiring and young entrepreneurs on their new ventures, whether that's through education or thought leadership or exposing them to other ways of entrepreneurial thinking. Um, and now actually with my research, which is rather than focusing on businesses, focusing on the entrepreneurs themselves uh, in fostering journeys of health and well-being along the way. What is optimal human performance? It's a good question. I think it means a lot of things. It really depends on the context uh, you're referring to. I, you know, a lot of the science of human performance uh, originated in sports and athletics. We can think of the physiological peak performance um, from a very biological standpoint, dealing with uh, with movement and uh, whether it's speed or or power. But for me, I'm very much interested in the optimal performance of the mind and the brain, so uh, psychologically and neurologically speaking. I am, I am looking at the context of entrepreneurship through this lens, which is probably a little bit different than what most people have kind of uh, examined within this space. And it, it kind of comes from my own journey um, and, and the journey of a, a lot of my peers who were building new ventures, maybe their, their first, maybe their second, 
and we're going through uh, the classic peaks and valleys and uh, the emotional struggles and stressors of, of building a venture. And for me personally, it had a pretty profound impact on my life. I went from being a, a very healthy, fit, competitive athlete to uh, within a few years being overweight, stressed out, living out of a suitcase 200 days a year, and being very much out of balance. And while I was going through this journey, there were an increasing number of high-profile entrepreneurs that uh, were going through similar experiences, perhaps even worse. There was a rash of of entrepreneur suicides during that time, a lot of people becoming more open and transparent about their mental health on this journey. So I got really interested in the well-being of entrepreneurs. But I think what I think entrepreneurs oftentimes don't like thinking of mental health. Um, many of them reckon their reckon themselves to be peak performers. So um, I try to frame this topic, kind of looking at it from both sides, from the mental wellness side of things as well as uh, maybe the more positive side, which is which is peak performance. So many people say that like, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you have to be super passionate, love what you do. And I guess sometimes that doesn't give you the leeway to also say, hey, I'm really stressed out and my mental health is not doing so well. Why do you think we kind of have arrived at this situation where you seem to be able to only fit one box as an entrepreneur? That's a great question. And I think the the shortest answer is it's cultural. Um, you know, I can at least speak for for my generation. You know, I grew up with you know family and friends, people around me that always said, you know, if you want to succeed in life, you have to be the hardest working person in the room. Or there's always someone on the other side of the world that's staying up later, working longer and harder than you. And then there's all of these kind of influencers and famous people out there that uh, espouse this stuff. It's what I call hustle porn. You know, you, and you can see the memes all over the internet about how you've got to grind and how you've got to work so hard. I think one of the classics is Elon Musk saying that being an entrepreneur is like chewing on glass while staring into the abyss. And, you know, all of these kind of memes that suggest this. And uh, many of us that, you know, follow the literature, that read the magazines, that follow these influencers, uh, very much buy into that kind of stuff. And so there is this maybe a little bit machismo kind of culture that exists in an already uh, far too male-dominated discourse. But um, yeah, I think it's just something that many of us were surrounded with and we were raised to believe that. And my my belief now is that that's completely flawed and it's not about working hard it's about working smart it's about optimizing your experience and it's about um you know you mentioned something about passion and i try to get people to not think about passion i try to get people to think about purpose because purpose is really rooted in you know intrinsic motivation and without intrinsic motivation and that kind of deep-seated desire to want to do something bigger than yourself for the sole purpose of doing it rather than for some potential outcome those peaks and valleys of the journey get really really hard to 
to manage and to navigate. And how do you actually work smart? I mean, there's definitely this dark side to entrepreneurship, but it's also clear that building a company is hard work. So how do you balance that? And what does smart working actually mean on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. There are so many different ways of, of doing that. You know, I think there's there's the side, which is maybe kind of the precursor, which I kind of call priming the pump. Like, how do you prepare yourself for, for those experiences? And, you know, I think one, you know, I'm a big believer in, in feed the body to feed the mind. So, you know, making sure you have a good baseline of, of physical health. I think it's, you know, we mentioned purpose already, really understanding why you're doing something and and making sure you have that intrinsic motivation. It's having, you know, balance. I think a lot of people see uh, their ventures and their entrepreneurial endeavors as a extension or reflection of their own identities. Um, I find that to be very, very problematic. I think it's great to be an entrepreneur, but our businesses don't necessarily define us. So being able to uh, identify with things outside of that experience is very important. And then during the journey, you know, there are so many ways, and I'm working with 17 entrepreneurs right now uh, in this study that you mentioned earlier, Oliver. And every day I'm kind of giving them another tip of things that they can uh, explore to kind of optimize their day-to-day lives. And, you know, it can be at a team level in the way communication takes place. It can be, you know, at a physiological level, the way we rest and recover Um, It can be in the environment that we create and things that are conducive to greater focus and concentration. So there's so many different avenues and directions we can take to kind of optimize our experience. And in many ways, identifying what they are is very much an N of one experiment because we're all so profoundly different and we respond to stimuli in such different ways. We have to kind of take this toolkit that exists out there and identify the ones that work most effectively for ourselves as individuals. Could you speak to the um, study you're currently conducting with an ad tech stars? Sure. So I am, I am probably Germany's oldest doctoral student right now. <laughs> um, I was very passionate about this topic and decided that I would uh, explore it through the context of academia. So it is doctoral research. I partnered with an organization that's near and dear to my heart. That's from my hometown of Boulder, Colorado, Techstars, the uh, arguably the largest startup accelerator in the world. And I'm currently working with 17 founders that are in the Techstars Berlin cohort currently. And I recruited these founders to participate in this study. And what we're essentially identifying is what are the kind of antecedents or precursors of peak entrepreneurial performance. And we're doing this in the context of the accelerator because it provides a really great control. So all of these different entrepreneurs building their own unique ventures are all essentially operating on the same schedule for the course of 14 weeks. So each day they're doing the same things, they're participating in the same workshops, they're going through the same types of mentorship and activities, but they're all doing it you know, as individuals with their own unique obstacles, challenges, and opportunities. They're doing it with their, their own teams, and then they have their own unique business models. So what we've done is we've provided each of them something called a WHOOP, which is a a fitness tracker. It's a little strap that they wear on their arm. 
uh, with a sensor and it tracks their heart rate a hundred times a second. And that data, that resolution of data provides some really interesting insights. Uh, things like heart rate variability, uh, respiratory rate, resting heart rate, um, all of the different dimensions of sleep. It tracks exercise and other physical activities. Um, so it provides a, a large number of biomarkers. Um, and then along with that, they do a daily survey called the flow short scale, which is kind of a famous survey for tracking flow states. Uh, it's self-reporting and they basically report on their most immersive experiences throughout the day. And then all that data gets aggregated, put into dashboards where they get to kind of see how they're performing on a day-to-day -day basis. And then the study culminates with deep dive qualitative interviews to try to understand what they're doing, what interventions they're taking to make make themselves perform their best. And I think that's probably the unique piece because historically um, flow research was very much binary. It was trying to identify if and when people were getting into flow. But one of the reasons that was the case is for so many years, the concept of flow, this concept of optimal performance wasn't one that was widely understood. But in the entrepreneurial community, it's almost part of the lingua franca now. So many people are familiar with the topic. Most people have their own personal interventions. You know, I used to own a software firm and you could see the the engineers, they're so good at this. They put on their noise, noise canceling headphones. They create their own environments that allow them to concentrate deeply and focus. So Although everyone has kind of different ways of priming the pump for themselves and creating the environment that's conducive to flow, the idea is we want to understand what people are actually doing. And then rather, and to overcome the bias of self-reporting, we're using the physiological data to essentially cross-reference that and validate it. And what are some of the implications of the study or what do you expect to kind of be able to do with the findings at the end of it? Does it mean that you come up with some secret formula that's like do A, B, and C and you'll be successful? Or what exactly is it? The, you know, to be honest, it's an exploratory study. So I don't know what's going to come out of it yet. We're already seeing a few interesting insights, but it's not complete. Um, in the end, I would say the objective of the study is to help identify pitfalls and opportunities for founders that... Um, you know, when things are going tough and when they're in those deep valleys and deep struggles that they have tools that they can use to kind of pick themselves up and, and operate at a little higher level. And, uh, and then the ones that are, are really finding deep, immersive, meaningful work, if we can identify some of the ways that they do that, maybe that's something that can be shared with other entrepreneurs that will inevitably be on that journey at some point as well. You're obviously an important advocate for a healthier work-life balance and rethinking startup culture. Um, what tools do you use in order to spread the word and, and hopefully uh, not just rethink, but also reshape startup culture? I mean, I, I guess I try to spread that word every way that I can. Um, I'm involved with... Uh, mentoring many, many startups. I think I have 11 that I'm working very, very closely with. And every month I probably work with uh, another 30 or 40. And I try to do things a little bit different than, than other, you know, coaches or mentors do. Um, you know, 
especially in the mentorship world, whether it's with an accelerator or a university or even kind of one-to-one with other teams, you've got limited amounts of time. You're kind of flying in and out, jumping in at a moment in time, trying to assess the situation. And, and our sole role is to identify the weak spots or the soft spots in the model and, and poke at it a little bit to help the founders, you know, identify things maybe that they, they haven't thought of. And there are some mentors that are incredible at that. As a result of the work that I do, I, I've kind of shifted my approach a little bit and I do still focus on the business models and try to work through the mechanics with the founders, but I spend more time working with the founders one-on-one. And I think the more I've gotten the message out about, you know, peak performance and well-being, the founders that I work with are coming to me and instead of wanting to address challenges with their business, um, sometimes I almost feel like a de facto therapist. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I start hearing about, well, you know, I'm struggling with my coworker and I feel like things are imbalanced. I don't think our communication is going well, or, you know, I'm just drained and exhausted all the time, or I haven't slept well in, in days. What, what can I do? So I try to incorporate it a lot in, in my mentorship. I do workshops on these topics quite regularly. Um, you know, I, I try to incorporate it in my podcast as well. I actually just did a, a podcast with uh, Valerie Bonstrom of, of Vaha, which is a, a fitness mirror. Vaha actually means flow in Punjabi. So we had a, an hour-long conversation, which was supposed to be about startups that turned out to be about flow. So somehow it permeates uh, pretty much everything I do these days. Can you tell us a little bit about your podcast, which is called The Most Awesome Founder Podcast? So I I think it already gives you a bit of an idea of what you're going to be hearing. Um, How did you start it? How's it going? What kind of topics really excite you uh, when you're speaking to people? I mean, the short answer is all of them excite me. There, there are few things I enjoy more in this world than getting to sit down for an hour and having a, a, a spirited and intellectual conversation with a, with a really bright mind. You know, I had one of my mentors once told me uh, the old adage, Garrett, if you're the smartest guy in the room, you're in the wrong damn room. And uh, that's why I love those things so much because I, I get to spend time with, with brilliant people and talk about my my favorite subjects. You know, the, the, the podcast was kind of something I fell into when I came to the university. Like I said, I wasn't the traditional doctoral student and uh, the entrepreneurship professors here wanted to do something different. Um, obviously, I'm a native English speaker. i am also uh, been a serial entrepreneur, I guess. So I, I get to approach these topics from a different perspective. And I said, heck yeah, I'd, I'd love to do that. Um, and it's been great because I've met some of the most incredible founders, entrepreneurs, investors, even academics uh, around the world. And yeah, it's just been a, an absolute riot. So each each topic, each conversation we have usually has some type of meta topic, which is really grounded in what that specific guest does well in in their lives. But rather than do an interview. It's um, I'm a big advocate of storytelling, and you know I don't want to get into the neuroscience of it too much. But you know when when people tell stories, it it has this wonderful cascade of neuromodulators that that flow through our bodies. We mirror the experience. We put ourselves in the story of the uh, as the protagonist, and we get all these great feelings, dopamine, serotonin rushing through our bodies. And 
so I really try to focus on, you know, let's, let's tell stories, let's have a conversation and let's just see where, where it takes us. And more often than not, it takes us to, to pretty fun and interesting places. I mean, you mentioned one of the key learnings about communications, uh, which is storytelling is, is key. We make sense of the world using stories. What other communications um, learnings have you encountered in the last 20 years while setting up and, and running a number of startups and now being a mentor to those? I mean, communication is obviously quite key in order to make a startup successful, but also to attract talent, to find customers and to convince others to partner up, whether that's as investors or in any other role. Yeah, I mean, you nailed it, Oliver. Like to me, that is probably the most fundamental skill of entrepreneurship. You know, you can teach people to, to financially model. You can even you can teach people to to do digital marketing. You can teach people to even code or build products or, or whatever it might be. And I think you can even foster creativity to a certain extent. But there are a handful of characteristics that that to me separate the entrepreneurs from the entrepreneurs, the people that really kind of have the the gift. And one of that is their ability to communicate because it permeates almost every aspect of the entrepreneurial journey. Um, you know, whether it's li like you mentioned, whether it is sales or it's recruiting team members, I think for venture backed businesses, being able to tell that uh, aspirational story is so critical for, for fundraising. Um, but in order to do that, you know, you, you kind of have to have some, some tools in, in your toolbox. And I feel, you know, I, I've made, I feel like I've made every mistake in the entrepreneurial book. Um, I don't know if I actually had a gift of having a lot of tools at my disposal, but I was really fortunate and I never studied business. So I actually spent 10 years in the development world. I worked for UN organizations. I worked in remote Aboriginal communities throughout Africa, the Middle East and, and Asia. And in that work, um, there is an inherent power dynamic at play. You're coming from, you know, a wealthy country, you're getting paid quite well, you're going into places, emerging economies, uh, sometimes in communities where, where people are struggling. And there is a, a real divide between you, the development practitioner and the people you're trying to work with. And the philosophy that we were kind of taught one of my mentors, my my advisor uh, during my master's time, master's degree, John Friedman, would always say, you know, every good relationship is rooted in dialogue. And in order to overcome those power dynamics, you have to create relationships of love and trust. And I think it's one of the things that I, I carried with me is that, you know, you have to be authentic, you have to be transparent, you have to, you know, provide people with a sense of agency, control and empowerment. And, and the best way to do that is to be open and, and honest and transparent with with your communication. You actually just mentioned something that was quite interesting to me, Garrett, is that you um, didn't study business per se. Um, but I was curious actually to hear your thoughts on the power of educational institutions um, in the entrepreneurship field. Obviously, you're working now in a university, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on, um, you know, how those interact. You know, what's the theoretical versus the practical aspects and what's important? Oh, Lita, you're going to get me in trouble. <laughs> um, I mean... I, I'll be I'll be candid. Like I am not a great believer in quote unquote entrepreneurship education. Um, I believe entrepreneurship is something you do, um, and it's not 
It's something you learn by doing. It's very, very difficult to kind of learn that in a more sterile setting of, uh, of a classroom because every experience is very, very different, you know, and however, you can learn great tools. You can learn um, philosophical approaches. You can learn some of the tangible things like how to create a pro forma or financial model or how to use various tools. So that can be very, very effective. But there, you know, entrepreneurship is such a profound combination of hard skills and soft skills. Um, knowing who you are, knowing what you're good at and, and what you aren't. And those are things you're not going to learn from an exercise. You're only going to learn when, you know, your chips are on the table, things are on the line and, uh, and, and you're out there doing it in the real world. So as much as uh, I, I'm obviously a supporter of, of education in general, it's done great things for, for me in my life. But I always urge young people that are studying entrepreneurship or studying business and they, or, or even studying engineering and they want to go down the entrepreneurial path to do it as quickly as possible. Because it's not, you know, it's not just if you're an entrepreneur, um, it's not just this thing that you do. It's more something that you are. It's a career path, just like being a doctor or a lawyer. And whether you're, you know, in your first year out of medical school or you're on your first startup venture, you can assume once you've done this multiple times, you're going to get better and better and better at it. So the sooner you can get out and start doing it, um, the sooner you're going to be on a on a more likely path to success. Yeah, interesting. And um, you, you're obviously building the VHU Entrepreneurship Center at the moment. So does that approach inform what you're doing there? And, and could you could you speak to what the plan is? Sure. Um, I, I would say it does. I mean, my role, I, I'm not an academic. Um, so I, I have such great respect for, for researchers. It's such a different way of thinking than I am. I'm, I'm much more practical and hands-on. I have to learn by doing rather than than by reading or, or hearing something. And so what I'm doing with the university is really trying to build up the, the practical programmatic initiatives around entrepreneurship. So, um, you know, we have great faculty, we have great people at the university that that teach wonderful courses, um, some that are very practical as well. But my role is to take the nascent entrepreneurs and the new ventures that are kind of emerging from our ecosystem, that's both students and alumni, and giving them the tools to kind of mitigate risk and to rocket fuel their, their new venture ideas a little bit faster. So how do we do that? Um, you know, it's it's providing some learning opportunities outside of the classroom that are being taught or workshops, events that are actually being taught by real world, highly successful entrepreneurs from our community. Um, we're creating programs like incubation, coaching and mentorship. We're doing a, we're launching an accelerator program this summer, a, a 50 day intensive mentor driven program that's taking these early stage businesses and giving them the coaching and the tools and potentially the access to capital to get to market faster. So in the end, you know, I think historically, this is starting to change now, but historically new ventures that came out of universities, they had their ideas. It was time to create a business. They would certainly leave a, a little village like Fallender, go off to Berlin um, very early on, become a small fish in a very big pond and 
have to scrape and and find their way. We're trying to make it a little bit easier, giving them access to the networks and the resources and push their venture a little bit farther along so they're more adequately prepared and, and ready to take on the world. And does communication play a role in the in the summer program or the um, Yeah, well I would just say Oliver, yeah, the answer is yes. I would say communication certainly plays a role in the the summer accelerator. It is uh The program is mentor-driven more than anything. So over the first two weeks of the programs, uh, each startup is going to meet with 80 uh, exceptionally successful um, uh, entrepreneurs and investors that are going to help them with their business models and, and essentially pick them apart. Out of those 80, they'll pick some as their leads that will follow them through the program. And then people will be coming in Uh, like yourself, running workshops and and helping educate them on some of the things that they're maybe not learning in the academic setting. So uh, it is dialogue based. It is relationship based because, you know, in the end, the, the old adage, it's not what you know, it's who you know, that may not play out more true in any other space than than the startup world. Say I was a student or a young entrepreneur right now with an idea. What's the one thing I should absolutely start doing today to kind of succeed? Well, it's going to sound cliche, but the, the short answer is, you know, stop thinking, stop modeling and, and start doing. It mean, that means like get out of your apartment, get out from uh, in front of your screen and go out and engage people. You know, scream your idea from the rooftops if you have to. Anyone that will listen, tell them the idea, get feedback. You know, there's this concept called the lean startup. Um, it's a great book by Eric Reese. It's kind of one of the fundamental books for, for, uh, aspiring entrepreneurs, but it comes from a methodology, uh, That was that originated from Steve Blank, the professor at, at Stanford and exceptional entrepreneur himself. And the whole idea is, you know, you can have an idea, but if you're going to get to product market fit, that means the market has to want your idea. And the chances are is you're going to have to iterate on that idea many, many, many times until it really reaches a, a large enough audience. And you can't do that by financial modeling. You can't do that hiding behind a screen. You have to go out and, and engage the world. So, um, you know, we, we've been talking about communication, you know, going from zero to 50 kilometers an hour, that first step is all about communication. It's about, you know, communicating your idea to as many people as possible, being very data oriented and disciplined on learning from the feedback and adapting to, to what you hear. And how, how has the journey been for you personally in terms of building your brand? And uh, obviously you, you very clearly position, people know what you stand for, you're very present, be it on social media, be it with a podcast, uh, you know, you're thinking about a book. So how, how has that journey been and where do you see your own personal brand and positioning go over the next few years? Wow, that's, uh, you know, honestly, Oliver, I've never really thought so much about my personal brand. Um, and that's one of the reasons I bought your book. Um, because I probably should a little bit more because I, I never really had a, a great desire or intention to be visible in the work that I do. I do it because I, I love it. But as I've gotten older, I guess I've gotten a little more visibility. Things like the podcast is, uh, has created a little more. Also being at this high profile uh, business school has has done that as well. I mean, I've I've just 
shared with the world things that I'm interested in, if I can ignite um, some thinking among people that otherwise wouldn't think about these topics, uh, that was really my my sole purpose for doing it. But um, yeah, maybe I guess in short, maybe I need to start thinking about this a little more. So we need to continue this dialogue, Oliver, because <laughs> I think there's much I can learn from you about. No, that. but it's clearly working. I mean, what what you do is working, and it finds its audience. And what I find impressive with that, <clears throat> you, you, as you, as you said, you make it about the, the the topics, about the things you're interested in, and helping other people, and your strong engagement, whether that's in developing countries or now as a mentor to many startups speaks for itself and i think you know the strength of your personal reputation lies in your ability and your willingness to help others i mean i i try you know it's um <laughs> it, it's funny because one of the reasons i i left the development field there there were multiple reasons but one of them was uh you know, I, I guess I came to the realization that 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 particular practice was much more self-serving than I actually thought it was. I think a lot of uh, idealistic young people go into the development sector and say, oh, I'm going to go out and I'm going to make an impact. I'm going to have an impact on people that are struggling on health, poverty, the the environment. But once you've spent a decade or so in that field, you what you realize is that it gives you so much more than you're actually able to, to give back to it. And so I, over time, I think for many people, the idealism wanes a little bit. And I think that's one of the reasons I feel so in, inspired and energetic about the work that I do now, because when, I'm wor when you're working directly one-on-one -on -one with people rather than a, a population or a region, you know, you can really focus presently and intently on, on individuals and Again, not to sound too cliche, but you know the adage of if you want to change the world, you do it one person at a time. Um, it took me 20 years of my professional life, but I 100% believe that now. Well, better late than never to learn it. Um, if you could leave us with maybe one final piece of advice before we wrap up today, what would it be? Oh, gosh, so many. Um, but there's one I've been thinking about a lot lately as I've been working with uh, with some of the the current founders I'm working with. And one of the things that I've seen over the past decade or so is that, um, you know, we're in a much more competitive world now. Um, there was an era, particularly in Germany, of about 15 or 20 years, kind of call it the era of digitization, where, um, you know, a smart business mind could identify an industry that was ready for digitization, um, do something really simple and, and find great success. But now we're living in a much more competitive global world. We're dealing with deep technologies. Um, can you do the buzzword bingos of AI and blockchain and machine learning and computer vision and all these complex technologies that are creating much more complex businesses? And communication of that becomes so much more difficult for the founder. Because in the end, if you can't communicate what you're doing very effectively and easily, um, I call it the, the OMA test or the grandma test. If you can't in 30 seconds get your mom or your grandma to understand what it is that you're doing, you're going to have one heck of a time trying to get the the a, a potential customer to be able to do that as well. So I actually have up in my office here, I have a, a quote by the old American folk singer, Pete Seeger. And he said, uh, 
any darn fool can make something complex. It takes a genius to make something simple. Amen to that. I think that's 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 great advice, and I totally agree. I think the technology gets more complicated. The competitiveness is on the up, but messaging needs to be ever more simple because um, you know attention spans are very short, and you know we can talk about a three-second world, but if you don't grab someone's attention within a few seconds, then it gets very hard to continue the conversation. That that's it, you know. And I think if we all take a little bit more of a a scientific approach to that as well and understand what's actually happening in the human body and the human mind, we can become even more effective at doing that as well. Because in the end, you know, we are emotional beings. We're uh, a cascade of incredible chemicals and molecules running through our bodies. And if we understand how those work, we can we can reach people really uh, powerfully that way. But do you think that uh, self-optimization, having more data about your own biochemistry can become its own pressure cooker? I do, actually. I do very much. And and I've even seen it with some of the, the founders in my study right now where um, people are get so myopically focused on the data. They say, oh, you know, my recovery is so low or I didn't sleep well. I, I better like not do anything or my heart rate's up and, you know, I'm getting borderline hypochondriac as a result of it. And, you know, I always try to get people to, ground themselves a little and, and put it in perspective and say, you know, this information and there's more of it and there's more wearables and more technologies that are giving us greater and deeper insights into ourselves as biological beings. And they're great tools to cross-reference with the way we feel. But in the end, I think the most important thing is to be mindful and to be self-aware and to take the time to check in with ourselves. How do I feel? How do I feel like I'm performing? How is my, my state of mind and my mental health? And if there's uncertainty and ambiguity, then we can look at the data to either reinforce our hypothesis or, or reject it. But we just can't focus on all of this data. There's so much, there's so much nuance in the human body and the human mind that there's no one clear um, measure or variable that's going to tell us that we're going to feel good or we're going to perform well. So it's it's a useful tool, but it is not the tool. Interesting. Yeah, I guess we have to, like any new tool and device, we have to learn how to use it, interpret the data. And uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, I think done right, done correctly, is it sounds very, very useful. I'm open to trying it. And uh, so this, this is really, really helpful. Garrett, thank you so much. Uh, it's been an enlightening conversation. On so we touched on so many topics today. What I've been, what I've taken away is this new approach to entrepreneurship and how important communications is in the new brave world of uh, entrepreneurship, and also that we have to be quite mindful about um, working smart and not hard. But this is easier said than done, and it is, you know, as you said, it's a it's a sample of one. So it comes down to what works for you, what works for for an individual, uh, rather than making broad assumptions about populations. I think you you nailed it right there, Oliver. You got it. Thanks, Garrett. Much appreciated, and thank you all for listening. And uh, see you next week. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you want to work with me and build and scale a profitable personal brand in just five weeks, check out the Unignorable Masters program on OliverHours.com. It's 60% off at the moment and we're launching on the 19th of April. Because the invisible don't reach their full potential life, the unignorable do. 